Welcome back, one and all, to the podcast for Cultural Reformation. This podcast is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity, and it is also hosted on the Rebel Alliance Media Network. Do yourselves a huge favor. Go and check out rebelalliancemedia.com and ezrainstitute.ca. There are tons of resources there, not only this podcast, but several other podcasts that the Rebels put out, and then, uh, and then the Ezra Institute, we've got lots of articles, videos, sermons, lectures, tons of resources. What we want to do is provide you with the resources to understand and engage with culture from a thoroughly biblical perspective. Because, guys, the times are crazy. We don't need anyone to tell you that. What you need is a consistent, coherent, systematic biblical response. And that's what we're trying to give you with the, the work of the Ezra Institute. That's the same mission that the rebels at uh, Rebel Alliance Media have, have uh, taken up. And we're very pleased to be uh, working with them. Today's podcast is another live reading from Joe Boot's book, Gospel Culture, Living in God's Kingdom. You can get the book at ezrapress.ca. This chapter is called The Power Motive of Humanistic Culture. So without further ado, here we go. We're doing a live reading because we've had uh, we've had some good feedback about the uh, the effect, the enjoyment, and and we're also uh, we're also doing a a reading for an audiobook version of this book. Again, that's Gospel Culture. Joe Boots, the author. We're going to record an audiobook, and we thought we'd uh, again let you uh, let you guys in behind the curtain a little bit. This is a live recording, you are going to hear some uh, some stumbling, some stuttering. I'm going to start again if that ever happens. So if that's, uh, if you, if you've been listening and you feel like, or you notice that, you know, I read that, uh, he read that already, I haven't forgotten. I'm just not happy with the way that I recorded it the first time, and we're going to try it again. That's all that is. So, Thanks for being here. Again, this is Gospel Culture, Living in God's Kingdom. The book is by Joseph Boot. This is Chapter 3, The Power Motive of Humanistic Culture. All right? Chapter 3, The Power Motive of Humanistic Culture. <clears throat> and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2, 1-2 So far in our study, we have considered the meaning of culture and its inescapably religious foundation. We have also briefly analyzed the crisis manifest in Western culture today and some of its social fruit, a crisis flowing from the fundamental abandonment of the Christian view of the human person as a creature made in God's image. This abandonment has led to a radical spiritual uprooting and existential confusion seen all around us within the various organs of culture. Alongside of this, we are seeing the proliferation of pagan and occult spiritual ideas and practices as an alternative to the Christian faith. In this chapter, I want to drill down further into the basic religious motive that lies at the root of the newly dominant Western worldview, a perspective that is driving the seismic changes in our culture. Magicians and Materialists 
in the preface to his imaginative novella, The Screwtape Letters, in which a junior devil advises... <clears throat> got that backwards. In the preface to his imaginative novella, The Screwtape Letters, in which a senior devil advises a junior devil, Wormwood, in The Art of Deception, C.S. Lewis writes, quote, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors, and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. End quote. It is, I think, uncontroversial to say that the Western Church in the 20th century tended to fall, at least practically, if not theoretically, into the error of the materialist more than that of the magician. Certainly old Protestant liberalism was concerned to reject many of the supernatural elements of the faith and reduce a personal devil to the realm of mythology. I'm going to try that again. Certainly old Protestant liberalism was concerned to reject many of the supernatural elements of the faith and reduce a personal devil to the realm of mythology. In recent decades, however, with the rise of new brands of liberalism in tandem with the progressive re-paganization of Western culture, the worldview of witchcraft is making a definitive comeback, as evidenced by a deeply unhealthy interest in occult beliefs and practices reappearing in academic and popular culture. In speaking of the worldview of witchcraft, I do not mean to suggest that our culture shapers are all self-consciously engaged in occult practices. What I mean is that the essential worldview of the ancient world, which gave rise to various pagan ideas, arts, and practices, has returned to us in slightly modified form. Lewis was of course right to note that the materialist is caught in as great an error as the magician, since both positions are rooted in rebellion against God, both are diabolic and leave their presumptuous adherents exposed to real evil. The scriptures reassure the Christian with regard to the devil and all his works, You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. The Apostle John goes on to affirm that those who do not listen to God's word are in error regarding all spiritual matters. For from this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. 1 John 4, 6. God's word not human research, must be our foundation as we grapple with the beginning and... <clears throat> wrong word, wrong line. God's word, not human research, must be our foundation as we grapple with the meaning and significance of humanistic religious motives. The beginnings of devilry. The Bible makes plain that there is a real archenemy of the Christian and the gospel, the adversary called Satan or the devil. Jesus refers to his fall and his kingdom identifying the character of the evil one and his martial strategy, murder, and lies. Quote, he was a murderer from the beginning and has not stood in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. John 8:44. Moreover, Satan's work is likened to that of a thief who comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. John 10, 10. Death Robbery and deception are at the root of the worldview of witchcraft. Jesus is clear that lies and murder were on Satan's mind from the beginning. This beginning is a plain reference to the Garden of Eden, where God made man male and female in his own image and likeness. Because of this hatred of God, the adversary wanted to destroy man as man, that is, as God had made him as the divine image-bearer, 
and after seeing mankind cursed to return to the dust, Satan provoked the first murder of Abel by his brother Cain, 1 John 3.12. Clearly, Satan was and is a rebel against God, and the primordial crime he incited embroiled the human race in his rebellion, which centered around denying that man is created in God's image, with capacity for holiness, righteousness, and dominion power on the finite level. In fact, we might say that man's revolt was seeded by the demonic lie that man is not actually a creature made in the image of God, but is rather in process of becoming a God. Quote, you will be like God, knowing that is determining good and evil. Genesis 3.5 Thus, from the beginning, Satan's word was a lie, a word of negation and a denial of God's creation and purpose. Quote, God, in jealousy, seeks to prevent man from realizing himself. This self-realization Satan claimed to have, and his offer to Eve was precisely an opportunity for mankind to recreate itself in a new image, an image divorced from God and based entirely on man's creative will. The nature and psychology of man thus cannot be understood without a realization that man, created in the image of God, is now trying to abolish that creation and to institute a new and satanic creation. End quote. From the beginning, Satan wanted humanity to join his project, to oppose God and to build an order in which men are subordinate gods and servants to the Dark Lord, the Evil One, a theme powerfully set forth in J.R.R. Tolkien's epic The Lord of the Rings. In sum, to be human in the diabolical scheme meant independence from God and remaking oneself as essentially a new God. God's original design for human beings to pursue true wisdom and godly power to work, serve, and subdue all things in terms of the rule of the triune and sovereign creator had been corrupted. The new human pursuit became a quest for autonomous knowledge, wisdom, and power. Godless resources that could be used to create a new man and a new world in light of the satanic plan of negation, opposing the living God by parodying his creation and kingdom. We see in scripture that our mother Eve, in the grip of demonic deception, thought that rebellion against God's word was desirable for obtaining wisdom, Genesis 3.6. Hence the self-realization that our first parents sought was autonomous knowledge and power that excluded the living God. It is for this reason that scripture is clear. Rebellion is like the sin of divination, because you have rejected the word of the Lord. 1 Samuel 15.23 It is no surprise, then, that King Saul, disqualified as king for his rebellion against the Lord, is soon consulting a medium at Endor in search of an alternate word and knowledge from the spirit world. We can say, then, that the foundation of all devilry is rebellion against God, which seeks knowledge, power, and dominion through a negation of God's word and purpose. This is the essence of the magical worldview. As such, there is no white or good magic. Any attempt to deny and overturn God's creative word and divine purpose, and to lawlessly manipulate circumstances to bend to my will, whether by spiritual powers and forces, or by various political means, is a form of witchcraft and evil on its face. At root, Witchcraft implicitly involves the attempted remaking of man as a god with an autonomous source of knowledge and power. <clears throat> I'm going to try that again. At root, witchcraft implicitly... In <clears throat> One more time. And I'm snapping my fingers here 
it uh, I've been told to do that by uh, by the audio engineer guy because it uh, puts a spike on the waveform when he edits it and that can uh, that shows him sort of where to go in and out if anyone's curious that's uh, that's what you that what what I'm doing here where was I <clears throat> at root witchcraft implicitly involves the attempted remaking of man as a god with an autonomous source of knowledge and power, which is, in the final analysis, demonic. Now, since this is God's world, and creation cannot be over... <clears throat> nope. Now, since this is God's world and creation, and cannot be overturned by the lie, the fiendish parodying of God requires endless manipulations, deceptions, and the constant defacing of God's image-bearer in order to seek to make the devil's illusions a social reality. <clears throat> the ubiquity of sorcery. The strategies, arrangements, and methods of witchcraft, then, take many forms. It is neither rare nor a primitive phenomenon, the domain solely of antiquarians, but has been commonplace in all societies in diverse appearances throughout the centuries. I have suggested that the worldview that undergirds it has enjoyed a resurgence in recent decades. It is not incidental that the triumph of secularism in the public space has led to the growth of occultism and paganism in the private. C.S. Lewis pointed decades ago to a fundamental religious shift in the West, one which I would describe as clearly moving toward the pantheistic, toward the worldview of witchcraft. Quote, We who defend Christianity find ourselves constantly opposed not by the irreligion of our hearers, but by their real religion. Speak about beauty, truth, and goodness, or about a god who is simply the indwelling principle of these three. Speak about a great spiritual force pervading all things, a common mind. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let's try that again. Speak about beauty, truth, and goodness, or about a god who is simply the indwelling principle of these three. Speak about a great spiritual force pervading all things, a common mind of which we are all parts a pool of generalized spirituality to which we can all flow and you will command friendly interest. But the temperature drops as soon as you mention a god who has purposes and performs particular actions, who does one thing and not another, a concrete, choosing, commanding, prohibiting god with a determinate character. People become embarrassed or angry. End quote. This rejection of the personal, speaking, and commanding God in educational, cultural, and public life leads people to seek out alternate sources of spirituality, power, and knowledge for living. As a result, various forms of occultism and witchcraft are becoming socially acceptable, celebrated, and given credence as valid expressions of spirituality. In 1951, laws against witchcraft in England were repealed, granting more space for the discussion and practice of all manner of occult and magic arts. So ubiquitous are these practices now that many hapless Westerners do not even realize that they are taking part in them. Some forms of primitive occult practice seek to engage spirits or demons directly to raise tables, levitate, or move a glass on an Ouija board. But for the most part, the rituals of witchcraft, from Hindu meditation to the Wiccan's coven, are directed toward nature-based divinities, primarily goddess worship. This is not due to any notion of a moral or personal relationship to a deity, but is a personification of an impersonal nature or pure spirit, of which man himself is a part. That is, man is asserting himself as his own god. 
Thus, we should not be surprised to discover what researcher Linda Harvey has noted in regard to the goals of the witch's coven. Quote, Ultimately, the practitioner worships the self, whose instincts and desires are empowered by... <clears throat> Try that again. Quote, Ultimately, the practitioner worships the self, whose instincts and desires are empowered by occult spiritual forces. The focus of witchcraft is to take control of one's own or another's life. The enlightened witch invokes the goddess of choice. At the height of the ritual, there is an intense feeling of spiritual power when the priestess believes she becomes one with the goddess and nature or earth. The godhood of self is a stated pillar of witchcraft, as expressed in the 1974 Principles of Wiccan Belief, adopted by the Council of American Witches. The introduction states, We are not bound by traditions from other times and other cultures, and owe no allegiance to any person or power greater than the divinity manifest through our own being. End quote. Harvey also points to the widespread resurgence of witchcraft, highlighting that as far back as 1986, three Wiccan priestesses held faculty positions at Harvard Divinity School, an, <clears throat> an institution established in the 17th century to prepare men for Christian pastoral ministry. Although modern sorcery and occult arts are varied and inconsistent, I ran through that quickly, I'm going to try it again. Although modern sorcery and occult arts are varied and inconsistent, they include everything from primitive dancing and sex acts to induce rain or fertility, voodoo dolls, spells, and talismans, to very elaborate enacted rites and rituals in covens, as well as various alternative healing practices proffered as science. All teach that some sort of mystic correspondence exists between the metaphysical realm and the material world, so that the manipulation of forces or energy or powers to bring about man's will requires some corresponding action, technique, or drama on earth. Without a detailed study of these numerous forms, how might we yet understand the relevance and power of the magical worldview today and its impact on our society? Philosophical Foundations of Magic We have seen from scripture the implicit objective of witchcraft or magic arts as well as their moral root, the desire of the practitioner to become a god with autonomous knowledge and power grounded in overt rebellion. Behind this rebellion lie the powers of darkness. Paul is clear that the Christian is thus in a battle, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. Ephesians 6.12 Their malevolent stratagem, however, is typically to disguise their evil as enlightenment. 2 Corinthians 11.14 not surprisingly, therefore, satanic strongholds are more often than not erected in areas of human... <clears throat> Let me try that again. Not surprisingly, therefore, satanic strongholds are more often than not erected in areas of human philosophical thought and speculation masquerading as wisdom. So the apostle writes, The weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every high-minded thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to obey Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 4-6 In the ancient world, the founder of high magic was thought to be the mysterious personage of Zoroaster, as well as his religious disciples. These were the caste of wise men, or magi, who were essentially priests for the Persian crown circa 600 BC. 
They helped spread the religion of Mithraism to the Roman Empire. Philosophically, they were dualists, who posited conflicting powers of light and darkness, good and evil, Ahura Mazda and Ahriman, respectively. The Magi, from whence we derive the terms... <clears throat> the Magi, from whence we derive the words magus, magician, and magic, offered sacrifices to both powers or personages in order to appease the Lord of Darkness and to bring about the good. And the Greeks and Romans believed the Magi not only to be wise, but capable of incredible feats and miracles. Critically, the Magi professed... <clears throat> I had two different pronunciations of Magi there. I'm going to stick with Magi and I go back and do that again. Where are we here? The Magi, from whence we derive the words Magus, Magician, and Magic, offered sacrifices to both powers or personages in order to appease the Lord of Darkness and to bring about the good. And the Greeks and Romans believed the Magi not only to be wise, but capable of incredible feats and miracles. Critically, the Magi professed to be able to communicate with the gods and to foretell the future. Note here again that an autonomous... Note here again that an autonomous knowledge of events and spiritual power were both associated with the Magi. From the 1st century BC, a popular tradition began to associate the Magi specifically with dark arts and necromancy, so that in time, magic took on more negative connotations. So although it seems clear that the magic arts go all the way back to ancient Mesopotamia... <clears throat> Stumbled there a bit. Try again. No good. So, although it seems <clears throat> So, although it seems keep saying sames. That's weird. So, although it seems clear that the magic arts go back all the way to ancient Mesopotamia and Egypt, and quite probably to that ancient rebel Nimrod, the father of god and goddess worship and his consort, for the purposes of this essay, we will <clears throat> For the purposes of this essay, we will go back only as far as ancient Greece and Rome. It will be easy to dismiss witchcraft or the magic arts as having little to do with Western thought and culture, but the fact is that from the beginning, the thought forms of Greek philosophy, a philosophy shaped deeply by Egyptian, Indian, and Mesopotamian civilizations, which the, with their politico-magical worldview, have fought against the biblical worldview and continue to do so today with vigor. In the much-vaunted wisdom of the classical world, the philosopher Pythagoras, born around 570 BC, was a key Greek thinker who predated Plato by some 150 years. His life remains shrouded in occult myth. He came to be connected with the Persian Magi in ancient literature. <clears throat> he came to be connected with the Persian Magi in ancient literature, possibly as a pupil. Moreover, his doctrines involve a form of dualism and secret knowledge. He allegedly wrote of a trip he made to Hades was credited with the power of bilocation, or being in two places at once, and claimed he could remember four previous lives. <clears throat> His philosophic and religious debt to even more ancient occult doctrines and magic arts is clear. As ancient Greek historian Jacob Burckhardt has pointed out, quote, The passage in Herodotus telling us that the so-called Orphics and followers of Bacchus were really Egyptian and Pythagoreans 
clearly shows that the Pythagorean and Egyptian creeds had somewhat similar elements, just as the Orphic and Pythagorean rites were so similar as to be confused. We shall not try to establish whether he reached Babylon or not. There is no good reason to doubt that he did. He must have had some communication with India, too, for his doctrine of metempsychosis is far more suggestive of India than of Egypt. The foremost legacy Pythagoras left to the Greeks was the new religion and system of ethics based on reincarnation and linked with asceticism. Pythagoras founded a fellowship in order to propagate his hope of immortality. Like the Orphics, he too regarded the body as a... <coughs> like the Orphics, he too regarded the body as a tomb or prison house of the spirit, which was of a higher, heavenly origin. We're not expressly told whether he taught that the spirit, after its transmigrations through many bodies, would achieve extinction as its reward, or whether as Plato and Nipet <clears throat> or whether as Plato and Empedocles hoped, the spirit would be absorbed into infinity. Its immortality, however, suggests that Pythagoras held the latter view. End quote. This is quite a remarkable set of details that Greek culture and philosophy had some of their key thought forms shaped by Egyptian, Persian, Babylonian, and Indian occult beliefs and magical arts. Moreover, that a form of magico-pantheism was basic to Greek philosophy. In fact, as Burkhart goes on to argue, even in his mathematical teachings, Pythagoras mingled different categories together, so that he seems to have conceived of numbers as analogous to forces, and number relations as analogous to thoughts. The holy numbers were four and ten, which led the adherent into the contemplation of the sublime. And when Pythagoras traveled to speak, reports tell us that he was announced as coming to the city not to teach, but to heal. The conflation of science, magic, and philosophy here is very telling. Much later, around the time of the preaching and healing of the apostles, a Pythagorean philosopher and alleged wonder worker, Apollonius of Tyana, circa AD 75, was not only accused of killing a boy to divine the future of the emperor Domitian, but his biographer Philostratus admits that the master was indeed an adept at necromancy. The glory of Greece and Rome was not so glorious as some would like to pretend, and the popular notion that Greek thought liberated men from superstition and veneration of the gods is essentially myth. The whole of Western philosophy has often been described <clears throat> The whole of Western philosophy has often been described as footnotes to Plato, who was likewise interested in subterranean forces and occult power, and is clearly indebted to Pythagoras. In his Symposium, Plato defines the demonic. Quote, Everything that is demonic, says Diotima to Socrates, is intermediate between God and mortal. Interpreting and conveying the wishes of men to gods and the will of gods to men, it stands between the two and fills the gap. God has no contact with man. Only through the demonic is there intercourse and conversation between men and gods, whether in the waking state or during sleep. And the man who is expert in such intercourse is a demonic man, compared with whom the expert in arts or handicrafts are but journeymen. End quote. The person who could connect with the metaphysical world and its forces, bringing messages back and forth, was evidently highly regarded by Plato and his followers. It was not long before many pagans saw the gods of Greek culture as themselves daemons of an invisible and unknowable divinity. As Mark Wyndham has noted, quote, The rites which the Greeks and Romans associated with the arts of magic nearly always involved incantations directed at gods or daemons. End quote. 
superstitions, oracular dreams, the reading of entrails, spirit mediums, sexual rites with temple prostitutes, and potions for healing revealed in dreams by gods fitted easily with various philosophic schools in the Greco-Roman world. Spirit mediums called up gods who were thought to be able to heal the sick and to foretell the future, such that autonomous knowledge and power are clearly seen as the goals in man's effort to deal with his anxiety and build his civilization. When, in the historically significant diary of Aristides, a contemporary of Marcus Aurelius, the author relates a dream in which he is confronted with his own statue and sees it change into a statue of Asclepius, god of divine healing, his interpretation of the dream is telling. Quote, For Aristides, this dream is a symbol of his unity with his divine patron. End quote. For the philosophers generally, the ultimate god was variously thought of as ion, eternity, an abstraction, a pure unity, ultimate oneness, essentially a limiting concept, not the personal and holy god of the Bible. As Burkhardt explains, quote, With their doctrine that all is one and one is God, and with their definition of being, the Eleatics, Xenophanes, Parmenides, and Zeno were fledgling pantheists. They sought to grasp the divine essence in its purity. End quote. At the foundations of the humanistic philosophical tradition in the West. <clears throat> Try that again. At the foundations of the humanistic philosophical tradition in the West, therefore, are the basic tenets of the worldview of witchcraft. Man is becoming a god and participates in divinity, and there are forces, powers, and energies that can be accessed, granting power and knowledge to assist man on his quest for godhood. <clears throat> Simon Peter versus Simon Magus one of the most fascinating accounts in the New Testament is the encounter between the Apostle Peter and Simon Magus. The name Magus indicates that this man was a sorcerer or magician. The early church regarded him as the archetypal heretic, indeed as the father of Gnosticism within the philosophical dualistic tradition. In Acts 8, we learn of this Samaritan sorcerer who thought he could acquire the power of the Holy Spirit with money to perform wonders. Quote, A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and astounded the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest, and they said, This man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had astounded them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then even Simon himself believed, and after he was baptized, he went around constantly with Philip and was astounded as he <clears throat> and after he was baptized he went around constantly with Philip and was astounded as he then even Simon himself believed and after he was baptized he went around constantly with Philip and was astounded as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had welcomed God's message they sent Peter and John to them. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they. <clears throat> then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, "Give me this power too, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit." But Peter told him, 
May your silver be destroyed with you, because you thought the gift of God could be obtained with money. You have no part or share in this matter, because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, <clears throat> sorry, I just had to scroll down and I lost my space. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. End quote. Acts 8, 9-23 Simon Magus's view of the work of the Spirit as a source of power that he might be able to buy indicates, as does his following Philip around, that he thought he might be tutored by the disciples as though they were magical masters of a secret brotherhood who could teach him new techniques in witchcraft. Clearly, the Pythagorean worldview, a desire to tap into secret knowledge and power, had a profound grip on him. The root of his desire for secret power and a new knowledge was not love for God, according to Peter, but rather bitterness and iniquity. There is clear indication that a proto-Gnostic sect rose around Simon Magus, the influence of which was deeply felt in the early centuries of the Church. The secret knowledge of early Gnostic cults was associated with magical arts, and once again the dream of godlike perfection that lifted humans above the laws of God was part of the worldview of witchcraft an antinomianism that it seems Simon Magus taught. Clearly, he did not repent of his lawless actions as Peter commanded him. According to the early church father Irenaeus, the mystic priests who belong to Simon's sect lead profligate lives and practice magical arts. Being free, they live as they please. For Simon and his disciples, lower angels or gods made the world, trying to hold men in bondage by moral laws. Their goal was to be free of the laws of those lesser deities. So a Pythagorean dualism, demon invocation, and profligate antinomianism were basic to his Gnostic teaching. Libertinism and various forms of dualism have gone together ever since. What one does in the body is of no final consequence, because it is less than fully real. Distinctions at the level of created experience are temporary. The physical realm is less significant and real than the realm of spirit, ideas, or ultimate reality, which is a pure unity where opposites are joined together and moral as well as creational distinctions disappear. What is clear from Acts 8 is that outside of Christ, man's religious quest is to be the great power of God, to obtain a secret knowledge from the subterranean world and access power that will enable him to live as he pleases. It is equally clear that when this magician saw God at work through the apostles, he witnessed power of an altogether different quality. Magus was astounded at what God did through the disciples, and so in the grip of his iniquity sought to acquire God's power for his own purposes. In this power encounter, the sorcery of men and devils is seen for the parody of the power of the living God that it is. Magic and Modernity The pagan, politico-magical worldview posited the king or emperor as high priest of a magical world order, connecting men with divinity via the demonic realm, as the Christian gospel spread and steadily overcame this worldview, the magical arts were increasingly abandoned, suppressed, and forbidden. This in itself is something of a marvel, that the centuries-long established beliefs of Greece and Rome should give way so rapidly to Hebraic Christianity. While Christianity was triumphant on the Western stage, this did not mean that the occult worldview vanished altogether. At the core of that ancient practice of witchcraft, was the view that there can be no ultimate distinction between man and God, creator and creature, their powers, persons, and natures. Instead, those words <clears throat> instead, 
those worlds were collapsed and brought together. In the Middle Ages, there were many... <clears throat> in the Middle Ages, there were many manuscripts on astrology, professing to offer great secrets from antiquity and incorporating the work of alchemists, whose tradition is as old as the earliest mining and metallurgical activities of men, whether in Greece, China, or Africa. This was not the quest for gold, but for the original matter, the philosopher's stone, the undifferentiated prima materia that could fuse the opposites of reality, a kind of heavenly substance that linked the divine and material realms. But it was the Renaissance that not only revived, quote, the memory and the monuments of Greece and Rome, it also rediscovered the pagan myths which used to shape the... <clears throat> It also rediscovered the pagan myths which used to shape the inner life of the Hellenistic and Roman citizens, whose origin goes back to prehistoric times and which took shape in Egypt, India, Mesopotamia, and Iran. Today we can safely assert that the Renaissance was the time when all these esoteric doctrines first presented themselves to Western man in the daylight of open speculation. That is, without efforts on the part of the Church to suppress them. In this sense, we may even say that the Renaissance is that period in Western intellectual history when the first serious attempt was conducted against the Christian conception of God, men, and creation. I'm going to try that again. It felt a little bit uh, stilted. Is that the word I want? It sounds right. <clears throat> anyway. In this sense, we may even say that the Renaissance is the first period... Nope. Wrong line. In this sense, we may even say that the Renaissance is that period in Western intellectual history when the first serious attempt was conducted against the Christian concept of God, men, and creation. Underneath the continued Aristotelianism of the universities, the occult systems had a relatively easy way of penetrating the intellectual circles of Renaissance Europe. End quote. What was understood as universal knowledge by the Renaissance scholar was thus a mastery of occult arts, only recently known in Christian lands. This was not simply knowledge, but the art of manipulation. There was consequently a widespread blending and mixing of the worldview of witchcraft with Hebrew and Christian thought during this period. <clears throat> in the 16th century, men like Kaspar Schwenkfeld asserted in very modern-sounding terms that Christ is born in every man. As such, salvation is not necessary, but theosis, or divinization, is the goal, since man and God are ultimately indistinguishable. Magic arts simply facilitate this process. The Reformation was in part a resistance to the Renaissance recovery of the worldview of witchcraft. It constituted the reaffirmation of biblical distinctions between creator and creature, God's word and man's ideas, and the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit and the manipulative occult arts. John Calvin attacked both judicial astrology and witchcraft in his Avertissement contre l'astrologie judiciaire in 1549. He noted, quote, Many incredible things are reported of sorcerers, and truly when we hear them spoken of, we ought not only to dislike them, but also to be sorrowful in our hearts. Yes, the very hairs of our heads ought to stand up when we encounter them. But we must also keep in mind that they are the vengeance of God upon such as have forsaken him. End quote. For Calvin, sorcery was a fact of every age and nation, due to the rejection of God's truth. Necromancy and other magic arts to all appearance seemed to be wonders where the living and the dead were brought together. But for Calvin, quote, it is the devil that works such illusions. End quote. 
such magicians were not to be tolerated, but rather, quote, if judges and magistrates do their duties, it is certain that they will no more tolerate them than they tolerate murderers. Why? It is an overthrowing of God's service and a perversion of the order of nature, end quote. The Reformation's resistance to the worldview of paganism was effective for a season, and the Christian church was greatly strengthened in the West in certain regions. But with the Enlightenment era came, once again, a blending of the pagan Greek mind with Christian thought forms. The idealist philosophers conflated the individual mind and the cosmic mind, so that they saw the human mind as a particular manifestation of the cosmic mind, an idea inherited from the ancient Greeks. This concept led to what has been called Romantic Biology, which saw nature and society as an organic whole. The idea of nature as a realization of the ultimate reality led to the belief in the unity of nature. The ancient, <clears throat> the ancient evolutionary concept of the basic kinship of all things spawned ideas like recapitulation, according to which the... <clears throat> according to which the developmental history of the embryo supposedly paralleled the evolutionary history of the species. This idea has been shown to have influenced Charles Darwin. Romanticism joined the chorus singing nature's praise and insisted that human beings are simply part of this great organic whole. Indeed, man was just the sum of all the lower beings, and so it affirmed the basic unity of everything. In this sense, some have argued that romantic biology re-enchanted the world. But of course, that re-enchantment was not with a renewed understanding of the providential creator God of Scripture, but rather with the subterranean powers. Human thought was integrating downward again into the void of being, which it called divine. If ever there were a case where men put darkness for light and light for darkness, Isaiah 5.20, this was it. In the political and social realm, this meant the idealization of primitive man, the noble savage of Rousseau, and a belief in the revolutionary power of primitive acts and impulses as a source of renewal and self-realization. This, in turn, meant an exploration of the abnormal. <clears throat> Excuse me. This, in turn, meant an exploration of the abnormal, and with it, the paranormal. Because all men need power, if we do not receive it from above, we will seek it from the created order below. Where God is replaced by chance or fate as the determining power over all things, meaning gives way to meaninglessness, and the motive force for all things is no longer power from above, but primitive and regenerating power from below. The significance of this for the faith and direction of society is far-reaching. Determinative power is then only chaotic and mindless. As such, when Sigmund Freud applied Darwinism to human psychology, he saw the three basic drives of man as hidden in the unconscious, a remnant of the primitive past. They were parricide, cannibalism, and incest. It is no surprise, then, that the modern Western world has seen the rise of magic, witchcraft, and occultism as means to the true source of power and the revival of Satanism, power from below as an article of faith and hope. In the post-Darwinian world, faith in Satan seems much more logical than faith in Jesus Christ. Social Sorcery and Political Witchcraft In his poem, Satan Speaks, C.S. Lewis captures the essence of this modern yet ancient faith. Quote, I am nature, the mighty mother. I am the law, ye have none other. I am the flower and the dewdrop fresh. I am the lust in your itching flesh. End quote. 
the worldview of witchcraft seeks knowledge of correlations and correspondences rooted in a basic and original unity of everything, or nature, so that man might find autonomous power, the unity and all-sufficiency of the self. Contrasts and distinctions, separations and divisions keep the world in a place of struggle and conflict. Only when this oppositional reality ends, the world's agitation is over, and multiplicity is reabsorbed into the one of Plotinus or Brahman, Atman or Nirvana. When existence ceases, then alone can there be peace. Good and evil, right and wrong, truth and falsehood are all oppositional concepts that enslave man and society in conflict. Man must be reabsorbed into divinity, a pure unity, to find rest. But for that to take place, the manliness of man must be undone. Biblical multiplicity and distinctions must be eroded as illusions, and man's idealized unity asserted. <clears throat> Stumbled there. Too quick. Biblical multiplicity and distinctions must be eroded as illusions, and man's idealized unity asserted at every point. The image of God must be defaced. In ancient magical arts, this was done through the orgy, cannibalism, demon invocation, and perversion. Today, more sophisticated means are being added, while many of the others are still practiced. For the Christian faith, the creation and government of all things is of God, and his power and wisdom that have created, defined, and always govern all things transcends man, history, and the universe. It is this that modern witchcraft is concerned to deny, as much of the magi of ancient Persia and the philosophers of Greece or India. If we are to understand the radical changes in our society today as inspired by Dolob... <clears throat> If we are to understand the <clears throat> if we are to understand the radical changes in our society today as inspired by diabolic principalities and manifest in ideological strongholds that set themselves up against the knowledge of God, Ephesians 6:12, Corinthians 10:4-6, then we must grasp the essential instrument <clears throat> then we must grasp the essential instrumentality of modern political life as engaged wittingly or not in witchcraft, employing a secret knowledge in an attempt to join opposites. The goal of modern civil government has long ceased to be focused on the administration of justice. It is increasingly about the creation of a cosmic man who is divine, to join what God has separated and create a unified, distinction-free community that represents the end of all struggle. The purpose of such manipulation is power the power to control and transform in terms of a revived religious image of humanity. Our current culture is thus bent on defacing the image of God by denying that man is man and woman is woman, by negating the, go <clears throat> the God-given nature of marriage, and by politically manipulating people to believe and act as though an illusion were true, that homosexuality is normative, gender is fluid, and that adro... <clears throat> and that androgyny is the human ideal and that an <clears throat> and that androgyny is the human ideal harvey has noted quote, "homosexuality and cross-gender sexuality are embedded in witchcraft ritual" says christopher penchak in gay witchcraft he notes that magic as a spiritual path is one filled with transgenderism a magician of any sort must fluidly shift shapes between genders Knowledge of both masculine and feminine aspects of oneself is the reason why gays, lesbians, bisexuals, and transgendered people were recognized as potentially talented in the mystical arts. End quote. 
None of this should surprise us, since in the worldview of ancient pagan witchcraft, the original man was neither male nor female, but an androgynous figure possessing both sex characteristics. The hermaphrodite has always been an important figure in pagan mythology, symbolizing the undifferentiated life force in which all conflicts are resolved, a sign and symbol for both perfection and chaos. We see the same idea in tantric symbols of Tibetan and Chinese origin. Quote, the philosopher's stone, the original man, the androgyne, and the sphere were expressions of totality, and as such, symbols of a finally abolished multiplicity, symbols of the whole and at the same time... <clears throat> symbols of the whole and at the same time of nothingness. Further, the egalitarian political community is a kind of philosopher's stone on a large scale. Sorry. I forgot to say end quote. I'm going to drop it in there. Symbols of the whole and at the same time of nothingness. End quote. Further, the egalitarian political community is a kind of philosopher's stone on a large scale. <clears throat> Further, the egalitarian political community is a kind of philosopher's stone on a large scale, the original man of vast, even global, proportions. Such an ideal utopian city is in fact the final symbol for man's divinization. The radical cultural confusion and irrationality of our time with regard to gender, marriage, sexuality, and spirituality is not incidental, but basic to the revival of the worldview of witchcraft. Occultism, Sorry, I lost my place. Occultism is corrosive for every aspect of life and society. Let me try that again. Occultism is corrosive for every aspect of life and society. Each one seeks their own way, their own spiritual ascent by their own path, and falls headlong into their own abyss. The erroneous hope is that political formulas, utopias, and egalitarian signs and symbols will transition the inclusive, gender-fluid social order into a divine state. The problem for autonomous man is that sexuality is a fixed aspect of God's creation that provides a roadblock to man's desire to remake himself by his own magic words. Of course, the pseudoscientific manipulations don't end there. Great effort is being put into embryonic research and reproductive technologies, the goal of which is knowledge for the purposes of manipulation and the creation of a new man. Many strains of witchcraft in times past abhorred pregnancy accidentally produced from their perversions and orgiastic rituals. <clears throat> Many strains of witchcraft in times past abhorred pregnancy accidentally produced from their perversions and orgiastic rituals, and so would abort the fetus, then to be cut up and eaten by members of the order. In our own time, we have the mass slaughter of unborn babies on a scale well beyond that imagined in earlier societies. We have widespread promiscuity, the abhorrence of reproduction, and the sale of babies' body parts by government-funded organizations like Planned Parenthood on a black market for all manner of quote-unquote research. These practices all stem from the worldview not of science, but of witchcraft. An autonomous realm of knowledge is sought for the acquisition of lawless power so that man might become a god. Social sorcery is all around us. The modern Simon Magus believes that he has solved the riddle of existence like Pythagoras of old, and that he has changed the universe into what he wanted it to be, abolition of good and evil and fusion of the opposites. He gained a supra-rational power 
a vantage point where he usurps the right of <clears throat> a vantage point where he usurps the right of deciding the real and the unreal being and non-being such is the point our society has arrived at today and on such a basis politicians judges and cultural <clears throat> and on such a basis politicians judges and cultural elites make their rulings on marriage and sexuality and publish their curricula like the father of Gnosticism, they are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity, though they walk in ignorance. In the face of all this sophisticated occult power, the Christian cannot flinch or falter. Oh. Never mind. I'm going to ignore that. In the face of all this sophisticated occult power, the Christian cannot flinch or falter. Autonomous knowledge and power are disintegrating because they are satanic illusions. Satan can lie, deceive, manipulate, steal, kill, and seek to destroy, but he can do nothing constructive. He cannot remake man or the world, and his path is one only of death, not of life. And so the worldview of witchcraft, though it has been resuscitated for a season, has no more of a future than it had when Simon Peter confronted Simon Magus with the gospel of power, God's power. This world is God's creation and moves only in terms of His will and purpose. His word cannot be broken and no one can stay His hand. In Jesus Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and He is both the power and the wisdom of God. Colossians 2, 3. Christ instructed His disciples to wait in Jerusalem, telling them, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses. Acts 1, 8. This is the only source of true and integrating power, and the gospel still has the power to change the world because it carries with it the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. We are given this unshakable assurance that whatever the machinations of darkness may be, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Romans 16.20 Hey guys, well thanks for sticking with me. That was uh, one of the longer chapters, and I appreciate... Uh, tuning in so uh, again we'll be we'll be producing this as an audiobook just as soon as we get everything recorded we will be putting this out uh, on the podcast this week so that uh, you can listen to it again you don't have to always be here live with me I also have other things that I'm doing I'm not live all the time thanks for being here I hope you have a great week Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please take a moment to like, share, and rate the podcast on social media and your favorite listening platform. For more resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.